Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. You know, not too long ago, actor Bruce Willis was in the news. He's suffering from aphasia. Generally, this is loss of language due to some kind of injury to the brain. But there are many different types of aphasia. For example, in Wernicke's aphasia, people can produce language, but they have an impairment in understanding the words that are spoken to them. The types of injuries that cause aphasias can be stroke, traumatic injury to the brain, infection, tumors, and lastly, proteins that attack the brain. This week's guest, Dr. Sara Manning Peskin, is a neurologist and author of A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. She knows all about how proteins, big and small, can wreak havoc on an otherwise beautiful mind. Before we get started, a quick reminder that I will be coming to you from Uganda soon. We have a few more episodes before I will take a small break to settle into my new home, Windy Impenetrable Forest, where I hope to be bringing you some incredible guests. Okay, let's get to it. All right, everyone, I am so excited to welcome my next guest, Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin, who is the author of a fantastic book called A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I I have to say, we're going to talk a lot about your book. First, I'm going to want to know a little bit more about you, but I do want to say for everybody, this book has got history. It's got uh, mystery. It's got science and it's got heart. So it has all the elements of a fantastic book. And you're a neurologist as well as an author. Yeah. I would say my main job, I think, is a neurologist. <laughs> okay. Right. That's your main job. <laughs> and so how did you, um, I always like to give listeners a little feel for how somebody got into the path that they're in. And so how did you decide to focus on neurology? When, when you decided to go to medical school? I actually, initially I wanted to be sort of a basic scientist. Uh, and then I started off as a, a combined program to do where you do both an MD and a PhD and you do the beginning of medical school. And then I did a year of a PhD and realized I didn't actually want to do basic science. And so I went back and finished med school and sort of had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, and eventually I realized that I, I really wanted to see patients who had sort of these personality changes or identity shifts. Um, and I think compared with psychiatry, I think I liked how there was more sort of, in some ways there's more objective tools in neurology. Um, and so that's how we ended up in it. And, um, and then within neurology, 
cognitive neurology was always sort of the logical place. So that's what I do now is mostly what I see is um, patients with yeah, sort of run of the mill, typical cases of dementia, like, you know, Alzheimer's disease starting in someone's seventies. Um, and then I also see a lot of really atypical and rare cases of dementia uh, where people have, have these really sort of wild, strange symptoms, uh, but they walk around for years, not knowing what's happening. Wow, that's incredible. And now, did, did you have any personal experience in your own life or family uh, that drew you to the cognitive kind of neurological side of things? Or was that just your interest in the brain? It's interesting you ask it. Actually, it was actually totally the, the opposite. So I grew up, I've, I had three living grandparents for most of my life, and they all were cognitively pretty normal. Um, but I was very close with them. And so I think it gave me a sense of um, realizing, you know, what is it like when someone has, you know, 95 years of experience and they can talk to you about all of that. Yeah. Um, so it actually was sort of the opposite, but I think that's what made me interested in, in this type, these types of issues. Yeah. So it's funny. My grandmother was 99 when she died and at 96, she was still, she figured out they were they were overcharging her at the <laughs> home. So she walked the mile down the road to the pharmacy to get her prescription filled. So I, I hope uh, I hope I can be just as sharp at right. six. Um, so that's really interesting. Now, I guess before we dig into some of the typical and atypical uh, changes that people might experience with aging or other disease, what is cognition. Like, what does that mean? Like when we think about people and, and even other species, like what does cognition mean for us on a day-to-day practical level? The way that we think about it is actually sort of divided into a few different discrete categories. So when someone comes in and we're sort of evaluating them for changes in cognition, really what we want to know is, are there, is, do they have changes in memory? Are there changes in their executive function, which is sort of multitasking, organization, judgment, um, changes in attention, uh, changes in language, whether they have difficulty expressing themselves, understanding other people, uh, do they have difficulty with visual spatial things? Can they interpret where things are in space? Can they see the borders of objects? Uh, and then um, and the last is, yeah, let's see. And then behavior. Last is sort of do they have you know changes in behavior that are concerning for something neurodegenerative? So those are really the five areas, five or six areas that we think about cognition. Okay. Um, I think I suppose that whoever you ask, you'll get a different definition. Uh, but for me, from a practical perspective, those are really the parts of it. Sure. And now, what's the difference between your garden variety type of dementia that's just normal aging? and dementia or cognitive dysfunction that falls into a different category. Because like on these spectrum of five things, you know, you might have some behavior changes. You might be a little forgetful as you get older. I've noticed some older people might repeat themselves a whole lot, but they're still functioning pretty well. So where is that line? Is it clear or is it blurry? Yeah. And you hit, I think you really bring up this central issue that we have, which is um, what is normal aging? What does it look like? We know that um, if you think about cognition, you could sort of divide it into two different types of cognition. So there's um, fluid intelligence, which is how do you uh, sort of um, respond to your environment in real time? How do you come up with words in the middle of a sentence? Recalling someone's name when they're right in front of you. Uh, There's a detour and you have to navigate around without uh, using a GPS. Uh, That's called, that's fluid intelligence. And it turns out 
you're best at that probably in your twenties or so. And then you essentially get worse your whole life. And that's in normal people. Um, it's like, right. It can be a little bit disheartening. I know, um, so that's what's happening. Right. Exactly. But it's true. So, you know, you're, you're for most of us, you're worse this year than you were last year, but that doesn't mean you're, it's pathologic. It just means you're still alive, which is good. Yeah. But so, and then there's what's called crystallized intelligence. And that's things like, um, why do we have a parole system, uh, vocabulary, um, that stuff, I should actually should say vocabulary is the exception, but most crystallized intelligence gets better and better till your sixties or so, and then starts declining. So if you're in your eighties, it's all getting worse, even if you're normal. Vocabulary is sort of the one exception. Um, not coming up with words in a sentence, but knowing definitions of words, that actually seems to be sort of remarkably resilient to in the face of aging. But um, but in any case, so there normal aging, there is a decline, and it's really hard for to tell at what point is something pathologic. And so we have a lot of tests that we do that are basically brain games, and there are standardized values for you know what's normal and what's not normal. And so that's a lot of how we define it in a sort of real life perspective. Dementia itself, you know, dementia is not a normal part of aging. Okay. Okay. Um, So so the word itself implies something pathologic. Um, And that's, that's sort of often not, I think it's sort of a little known, you know, I think a lot of people have this idea of, um, oh, it's dementia. It's totally normal. Um, But, um, but by definition, dementia is something that's, that's pathologic. Okay. Oh, so that's important. I was using it incorrectly. So now I've learned a new (laughs) Definitely, <laughs> I'm going to retain that at least into my 80s. Um, I just want to point out the irony of that. When you're in your 20s, you you can be rapid but know nothing, and then the more you know, the slower you become. Exactly, <laughs> the harder it is to use it. <laughs> yes, I really enjoyed how you explained that as marvelous as our brains are, and and they are. I mean, really spectacular. They can. I like how you they misbehave. Um, or it can be attacked um, all as a result of these small or large changes driven by molecules, which is what's really in the title of your book, A Molecule Away from Madness. And, and you describe these molecules as uh, they go into different categories. You got mutants, rebels, invaders, and evaders. Um, and so can you give us a little like synopsis of what those four things mean. Uh, and, and then we'll talk about some specific examples. Yeah. So the, the mutants, that's a section that, um, is all about, all about diseases where, uh, they're caused by a mutation in DNA. So if you think about your DNA as essentially a three-dimensional computer code, um, you can have these small glitches and, uh, you live your life, everything seems totally normal. And then suddenly in your fifties or sixties or seventies, you develop dementia and you've been living with this mutation your whole life, but for some reason it starts to manifest and cause problems later. Um, and, uh, so that, those were the types of diseases that I wrote about in the first section. And then the second section is about rebels. And that's, uh, these are diseases where, um, you have a protein that's supposed to help us. And instead it targets the brain. So if you think of DNA as sort of a three-dimensional computer code, that's essentially just the directions for being a human. It's proteins that really do the work. Um, they're really the, the workhorses of, 
keeping a cell alive, keeping a human, you know, keeping an organism alive. Um, and uh, in the book, I write about uh, two conditions where the immune system ends up uh, sort of wreaking havoc on the brain. And uh, and one system, when one disease where uh, proteins that normally, you know, we all have these proteins, um, but in certain cases, they can become toxic and, um, and cause these really unusual conditions. Yeah, great. And then invaders sound like, you know, in bodies. <laughs> like brain invader. Yeah, exactly. So the invaders was uh, what I was thinking of is uh, these are small molecules. So DNA and proteins are really, they're quite big. Um, the invaders and invaders are much smaller molecules um, and they cause problems either by being present when they're not supposed to be something like a medication with a cognitive side effect. We're all familiar with that idea. Those are the invaders. And then the evaders are things that we, we need them to function normally. And when we don't have them or when we don't have enough of them, that's what causes problems, something like a vitamin deficiency. So, and, and this is, I mean, so much is so fascinating. Uh, uh, and so many of the things that you talk about, I know we're not going to get to talk about all of them and we don't want to, because we want people to, you know, <laughs> book. Um, but, uh, you know, in the first section, when you were talking about mutants, you used a really classic example, Huntington's disease. And I guess I never knew that it caused dementia. Can you can you give me a, a sense of what actually happens to someone when they have Huntington's disease? So the earliest symptoms of the disease often are behavioral changes. Um, and people can just have these wild personality shifts. And oftentimes people think it's psychiatric. That's usually the first diagnosis that someone gets. Um, because at that point, usually they don't have any abnormal movements. Um, and then slowly, sometimes, you know, many, many years after they have these wild personality changes, uh, they start having movement changes. Um, and so it can be really surprising people because all along they thought this person was just, you know, depressed or they thought the person was just sort of had become very apathetic or they thought the person had just become very sort of OCD. Um, but then they develop these movements and they're sort of the movements of Huntington's disease are writhing and they're almost like uh, if you can imagine sort of a, a fluctuating electric current going through limbs uh, and they're sort of um, they almost look like uh, exhausting um, and then over time people start developing dementia they start developing cognitive issues um, and, um, and they're no longer you know cognitively normal they have difficulty with thinking right yeah and and it's really um, from an evolutionary standpoint there's no real pressure, selection pressure to eliminate Huntington's disease, because if it starts in your late 40s, early 50s, that's post-reproductive. And, and from a, you know, sort of selective pressure kind of point of view, you still got to reproduce. And so um, it's not going to be eradicated necessarily naturally. But we have tools now where if you have a family history, you can screen and know whether or not you're a carrier uh, of it. But I'm curious, do you think that new technologies like CRISPR are at the cusp of perhaps eradicating a clear mutant like this particular disease? I don't think this is I don't think we're I don't think that's coming next year, I guess I should say. Um, but I think um, I mean, we've known we've known about the gene and the genetic cause of Huntington's disease for decades. Um, so, yeah, you know, I don't know that we're right on the edge of figuring that out. Um, but I do think that's, that's eventually going to be the, the solution. Right. And that's sort of eventually that's the, 
the that's the most direct uh, way to not necessarily CRISPR, but you know, genetic genetic therapies are sort of ideally that's the the place where we're all trying to go. Right. Yeah. I mean, the other option is that anyone with a gene never reproduces. So there is, um, right. So obviously that has its own ethical, uh, right. ethical problem. That they choose um, not to, that they, not that we make them not, sorry, <laughs> I was not saying that I was like, where but there's, some individuals choose not to, um, you know, do that. Or that, that it, you know, um, so one, th- one thought is, okay, let's say we could figure out and everyone in the world who had the genetic change that causes Huntington's disease or everyone in the world gets genetic testing. So if they have this genetic change, everyone knows about it. And um, it wouldn't actually be that they then, you know, um, would have to make the choice not to, re- to, you know, to reproduce. We actually have the technology now that if you carry um, these uh, these genetic changes, in a lot of cases, uh, you can, depending on the, the genetic change, but in, in many cases, you can actually use IVF. So if you do invert your fertilization, uh, they basically, uh, you take an egg out, you take sperm and you mix it together uh, in a lab. And then they, the, you know, the cells, uh, the uh, grow and divide and grow and divide and grow and divide. And they take away one of the cells and they look at the gene of interest and they figure out, is it a normal version? or a not normal version. And if it's a normal one, they would take that embryo and they would put it back in someone's uterus and it would grow into a baby that wouldn't have the disease. And it's this incredible technology that was developed in the 80s actually for cystic fibrosis. And um, now Huntington's disease is one of the most commonly most common reasons why people use that technology. Fabulous. So then they can have babies. <laughs> and not worry. They can have healthy babies. They can have healthy babies that will be healthy later too. So interesting because when it comes to genetics, I remember years ago, my first lab that I was teaching, biology lab, we were, we were screening, we were um, looking at APOE4, mm-hmm. which is, I believe, involved in early onset Alzheimer's. I'm not yes. sure if it's early onset or any. So it could be both. So um, APOE4, so the APOE, um, APOE4 is a allele. Um, so it's a, a version of a gene. There's, you know, APOE3, APOE2, and so on. Um, and the APOE4 version uh, is associated with Alzheimer's disease. And people who carry that tend to have disease that starts also that starts a little bit earlier. It's not technically the, the division of early onset is before 65. Um, so sometimes, it, you know, or often it can be later than that. But it does tend to cause the disease to start earlier than people who don't have that APOE4 allele. And that's when you think about Alzheimer's disease, there's sort of two different types of genes that are associated with the disease. There are very, very rare genetic mutations where if you have this mutation, you're essentially 100% going to get the disease. Right. Um, those are extraordinarily uncommon. I actually write about those in the book because some people think that even though those are really rare, that's where we're going to find the treatment that's sort of on this molecular fringe. Much more commonly, there are risk genes. So there are many, many, many genes. And if you have particular versions of the gene, you're at a little bit higher, a little bit lower risk of getting the disease. Those are a lot more common. And APOE4 is really the the most common, the most well-known, the sort of um, the big, that's the the big player in those risk genes. I remember we used to sort of joke if you were homozygous, you had two copies of APOE4. You should wear a helmet a lot. (laughs) It is. I mean, if you have two copies, your your risk of Alzheimer's disease is about 12 times higher than the normal population. So it's a pretty dramatic effect. That's right. That's right. It's interesting. I also later started studying mouse lemurs and they're a model system for Alzheimer's. So they get the same plaques um, 
but they don't seem to, well, we don't, they don't seem to suffer similar consequences that yet that we know about. I don't, I'm not up to date with the research that's going on. And that's always right. I'm probably not as up to date as I should be either. <laughs> oh yeah. So, so I, I actually, um, I think in, in Alzheimer's, one of the early symptoms is, a, uh, and I could be wrong since you're, this is your area, like a change in the ability to detect pure odors. Like- so there, loss of smell is associated. It's an early symptom of a lot of neurodegenerative diseases. Um, we often think of it also with um, before Parkinson's disease um, and before a condition called Lewy body disease. Um, that it, and it's many, many years before. It's an interesting phenomenon. Although I have to say with COVID, that whole association now is going to become really hard to study because um, you have all these people who've had changes in their sense of smell. So that's, oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought about that, but, but I am curious, why do you think, I mean, we have the olfactory bulb, right? That's, I mean, that's in our brain, but why do you think it's um, sort of this early symptom of so many neurodegenerative diseases? So it's a good question. I think there is a better answer than the one that I always think about. Um, but I think the idea is that, you know, but the pathology for all of these, uh, so the, the actual proteins that we are thinking are causing the problem or that are associated with them, it's not like they all, they all sort of magically appear everywhere in the brain at once. And um, they start in particular places. So yeah, there's some thought that, you know, do they start near the olfactory system? Um, for, uh, for something like Parkinson's disease, uh, it's associated with something called REM sleep behavior disorder, where people act out their dreams at night. Like you'll, they'll, you'll find them, uh, you know, punching and kicking and, you know, wrestling a bear when normally our brainstem helps us suppress movements when we sleep, but that's one of the areas that's affected by the pathology early. And so they no longer suppress movements when they sleep and they start acting to get their dreams. Right. So a lot of this has to do with where does the abnormal, where do the abnormal proteins build up first? Okay. Fascinating. And, you know, it's totally unrelated, but because you mentioned that our brain stem helps us, like it's like sleep paralysis, I think, where you, you can't move because you're sleeping. But recently I had the experience, which I had not had before, where my conscious brain woke up sort of faster than my, and I was like, Felt like I was struggling, like, you know, in my mind. Really scary. It was. And then, you know, I was like, whoa, that was really, I didn't like that too much. Let's coordinate everybody. Let's work together. That was uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you normally just wake up and then uh, you get, you move. But this was like, I was, I couldn't even open my eyes. I remember like feeling like I was trying totally so stuck. hard to open my eyes. Um so I know that we're focusing uh, a lot on symptoms, but one of the things that was really powerful for me about your book, A Molecule Away from Madness, was the real human lives that are impacted. And, and you, did, you really painted a picture of, of that. And I was wondering if one in particular stood out for you. Yeah, that's so interesting. I don't know if there's one. That, I think as I was writing each of them, they had each of them had sort of their own reasons for being um, interesting to me. I mean, there's one of them is sort of about a love story that was derailed by an abnormal protein. And, and then there are ones about, um, you know, a young woman who's sort of academically extraordinarily successful and was beginning a writing career and everything got sort of upended by a particular protein. Um, and then there was, there was a, a older couple um, where uh, this guy had sort of just retired and they were looking forward to retirement and, um, and then things went awry. 
Yeah. And then, um, and then there's two younger folks who I wrote about who are, are totally healthy, uh, but they know they have, um, they have, uh, genetic mutations or genetic changes that are going to make it very likely that they'll develop these particular types of dementia in the future. Um, and one of them is a, a young, you know, single woman. And one of them is a, a man who has, you know, who's married with kids um, and seeing, you know, what does that look like for different people at different stages? Yeah, they were, they were all very powerful. And what was also powerful was how many times, at least historically, maybe less now, um, you know, people were put into, um, sanatoriums. Yeah. They, all, all these people just ended up in asylums before. I mean, even the, the, one of the disease I wrote about is a, um, is a character who I, I they all have pseudonyms. Um, but I, the, otherwise they tried to keep everything factual. Um, but so this woman I called Lauren Kane, um, and she, uh, was a, a woman who grew up in sort of adverse circumstances, but was extraordinarily smart, did very, very well academically, went to elite university and then came home uh, over the summer after graduating and was living at home. And she woke up one day and had breakfast with her mom. And then she felt tired and went back to sleep. And uh, she woke up again and started repeating questions. And she ended up getting a fever. She became unsteady and her mom takes her to the hospital. And this was, I should say, this is a summer where she had been sort of binge watching The Walking Dead, the show. And it was in 2016 when it was sort of the height of the height of the show. And uh, she's just watching it all the time and then has this episode where she gets very confused, can't seem to remember anything new, ends up in the hospital. And actually, uh, in the middle of someone interviewing her or the doctor interviewing her in the emergency room, she basically becomes psychotic. She throws everyone to the ground. The security guards have to come in. They drape themselves over her body. They uh, end up having to restrain her. And she starts calling people by names of characters from the show. And it's one of the security guards who actually puts it together that she's calling people by the names of these characters because the security guard must have known. They must have watched the show. And uh, she basically, uh, in the end, um, they figure out that she has a disease that's caused by a particular molecule. And actually, she had developed a tumor on her ovary that nobody knew about. And the tumor itself wasn't a problem, but her immune system in trying to attack the tumor actually had essentially attacked her brain. And, um, and that's a disease that was only discovered um, in sort of the, the mid, uh, the mid two thousands. And so, you know, 25 years ago, she would have been, uh, I should say 20 years ago, she would have been admitted to a psych hospital. She wouldn't have gotten out. What was the treatment for her? So the treatment actually is to suppress the immune system and to get rid of the tumor. So they, they, she went to the operating room, they took away the tumor and she received treatments to suppress her immune system. And actually over time, the tumor, because the tumor was gone, uh, she eventually, now she doesn't actually need any treatment. She's totally, she's essentially cured. Wow. Um, there, there is a risk of relapse. Um, so about 25% of people will have a relapse, but usually it's identified much more quickly in those people because they know what happens. Well, you know, as I was reading and I came to the protein section, I came up with protein. It's not just for dinner. <laughs> everybody thinks, maybe I should have put that at the beginning I like that <laughs> like because everybody's like yeah I need protein I gotta get my protein right it's, uh, like it's and I didn't mean to take on a male voice I don't know why it's so like, funny. Protein. I think uh, we also eat like way more and that's me too like we eat way more protein than we really need yeah we seem to believe we need like piles and piles Huge amounts. Of it. Um, and we'll talk about later how important nutrition is keeping <laughs> our brains healthy. But you discussed some rebellious proteins. And, and was this an example um, in, in her case of 
because the autoimmune system created, it was involved and was it creating proteins to go after the tumor and then they just decided to go off on their own? They went off. Exactly. So it turns out the tumor that she had um, was sort of a, it's a, it's a really unusual type of tumor and uh, it has the ability to sort of um, mimic other parts of the body and it can look like a nerve cell. And so her immune system saw this and started creating antibodies to attack the tumor, but it also then attacked the nervous system. So that's the issue. Um, it's called, um, so that's basically the, the problem. Um, and it, it essentially um, attacks something called the NMDA receptor. And that's, it's very similar to the way that PCP works. It basically causes you to dissociate. Um, so you can think of for all of us, you sort of go through everyday life and you have all of these thoughts that come from your limbic system. Um, and some of them may be scary or uncomfortable. And then you have reality that keeps the thoughts in check. Um, but for her, there was essentially that connection was severed. Um, so your thoughts and your reality are dissociated. Um, and that's what happens in PCP. But PCP eventually wears off. For her, it didn't wear off. It was as if she's basically connected to a drip of PCP until they figured out what was going on and they treated her. Yeah, I have never, um, ever wanted to experiment with any hallucinogenic. <laughs> I didn't ever want that barrier removed. <laughs> no, I like it there. I think it's important. <laughs> I just like, so when, as part of this, I did a lot of reading about PCP and it's, it has a wild history uh, where um, it, and this is actually, I think it's also in the book where um, it basically was discovered in the fifties people, um, it used to be that when you needed to have surgery, they basically, you could do, if you use like injected lidocaine for something really small, but other than that, you had to do general anesthesia. So that means that you're putting someone to sleep. You have to put in a breathing tube. And for some people with medical issues, it's dangerous and it's really hard to keep them, their heart working and their lungs working while they're intubated. And it's hard to get the tube out. Um, and so people would have this issue where they needed surgery and they couldn't get it because they couldn't get the anesthesia. And so people at this drug company in Detroit, uh, they looked at a bunch of molecules that they knew would help with sedation and they modified them. And then they just gave them all to animals randomly. And they found this one molecule that that seemed to make animals fall asleep, but they didn't stop breathing. And this was amazing because it means that you could make them, you could make the animals fall asleep. You could do surgery on them, but you didn't have to put a breathing tube in. Um, and so they thought this was going to totally revolutionize the, the field of surgery and they get pretty quick approval from the FDA and they start shipping it out all over the country. And very quickly, they get these stories of people having these uh, totally, uh, you know, violent, um, Inc incredibly sort of uh, uh, aggressive behaviors and these horrible experiences as they're coming off of the drug. Yeah. And then uh, immediately is so the drug was only on the market for like two years. And then it very quickly becomes a drug of abuse. It's very popular at the beginning. And there's these stories of like kids who are 10 years old using it. Oh my um, God. It was very, very commonly used. And then now it's kind of disappeared. It's like the least commonly used drug of abuse um, in the country. Um, and a lot of a lot of hospitals have basically taken it off of their panels because right. I think people have this idea of there's, there's plenty of drugs of abuse and these this one's not that fun. <laughs> right. Well, and, and what's striking to me and what struck me when I was reading this in the book was that the animals don't have the same aggressive outbursts. And yeah, that's so interesting. Right. Right. I, just, I guess the other possibility is did they just not study enough before they got approved? Maybe. I don't know. But uh, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, so are all auto, so I, okay. So I guess my question is, you know, the, in this particular case, it was the tumor 
that sort of triggered this cascade that happened. But autoimmune disease have always fascinated me. And I know uh, research in sponges is helping us to understand how the body tells the difference between self and other. So what, in sponges, you can take a sponge, mix a couple different individuals in a blender, and they self-aggregate back into themselves. Well, I've never heard of that. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, so they're, they're looking at it, you know, when you get a transplant, right, you, you uh-huh. have to take anti-rejection medication uh-huh. forever um, so that your body doesn't, you know, reject this, this uh, other body part that has different cells and, you know, that belong to somebody else. But yeah, so sponges, you can, you can just shove them in a blender and they will self-aggregate and reconstruct themselves. Whoa, that's um, wild. I know. <laughs> so, so what I'm wondering is, do we know what triggers? There's all kinds of autoimmune disease. They don't all maybe affect the brain, but, but do we know, you know what, what causes them? Yeah, I yeah, know. And it's a huge, in neurology, it's a huge field. Think about MS is probably one of the, you know, the biggest places we see it is, you know, what causes MS? And there was this big, all the stuff that came out this year where people are saying, oh, you know, there's this big condition between um, Epstein-Barr virus and MS. Yeah. Um, but part of the issue is that like 95% of people have Epstein-Barr virus. It's, it's very, very common. Many more people have the virus than have MS. So it's not like it's really it's sort of overstated in the press. It's not like that causes the disease probably sure, sure. um but yeah you we for a lot of these we don't know even for you know the, the two autoimmune conditions that i wrote about in the book one of them we knew it was the story of this woman who uh, had the tumor and they removed the tumor and that was the cause the other one we have no idea this guy had this extraordinarily rare condition it took you know almost i think it was almost a year half a year before it was actually uh, um, sort of discovered and defined and uh, we have no idea why it happened to him now my father had myasthemia gravis mm-hmm. And I think that's an autoimmune. Yeah. It's not immune. Way at the myelin. Is it, is that what it does? So, uh, so myasthenia is a problem um, with communication between nerves and muscles. So you can sort of imagine you have to send a message to, uh, from your nerve and then it hits on your muscle and says, you know, contract. Um, and myasthenia is a problem with that. Okay. With that sort of communication. All right. And now I, I know that this is so, so speculative, but at that time he was under extraordinary duress. And so is there any relationship between sort of stress and and the chemicals that we kind of end up bathing our whole body in as a result of stress that can trigger a sort of autoimmune response? I mean, we know we get hives from stress and hives is an autoimmune sort of snafu where, right? I I think, I don't know. (laughs) But so I think there's certainly a relationship with stress and I'm trying to think in neurology, we know that people have more migraines during stress. And I I haven't read, you know, are you more likely to have like an MS flare in a period of stress? I'm not sure. Okay. Um, But I I wouldn't be surprised, but I've never read a paper about that. Okay. Interesting. All right. So my, you know, sort of the last category of things, unless unless I'm misremembering, uh, that really fascinated me because I started wondering, do other species get dementia? (laughs) I just was curious, you know, because maybe they don't live long enough for it to happen, or maybe like they die pretty quickly and we just don't have any evidence of it. The closest thing I could think about was chronic wasting disease, which impacts deer, elk, and moose, and it damages parts of the brain, typically uh, causing them to uh, have loss of body condition, so muscle wasting, behavior changes. 
Um, they start salivating a lot and then they die and it's a prion disease. And, um, and I think you mentioned in the book, was it Kuru and Kreutzfeldt Jacob disease? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Those, are, those are also rare prion diseases, but yeah. I have to admit, I haven't heard the, the chronic wasting one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people I think can catch it because the prions stay alive in the forest floor. So it, it's very hard for it to get rid of. So they have found it in leaf where, where you've, let's say you've killed an elk and you, and it had this usually through cooking, it's okay. Right. But, but, um, but the blood that comes out, it contains the prions and you can go back to the leaf litter and, and they're still there. They're still. It's interesting because we, you know, we talk about people getting, uh, most people who get prion diseases, we have no idea. They don't actually have exposure to game, but we always ask, you know, have you, do you have exposure to game? And I've never thought about the fact that it's probably, you know, the game itself has to have the disease. And I wonder if that's the, that's the name for it. Um, I've never asked that question before. It's a great thought. Maybe. And so, so tell me a little bit about the prion. I was fascinated because this involved also a ritual, a cultural ritual, um, I think if I'm remembering right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this story is a story in basically takes place in Papua New Guinea. So there was this, uh, this Estonian doctor who, um, doesn't really want to be in Europe during the cold war. So he goes to Australia and then he takes a job with the uh, public health service and gets sent to Papua New Guinea. And he's sort of looking for something remote and isolated. And he settles down there and he starts becoming the communities. He, he was a doctor before and he basically becomes the community's doctor. And he gets word from, uh, from someone else that there's this disease that seems to be affecting a particular tribe called the four tribe. And uh, he goes off into the four tribes territory and he starts witnessing the disease. And it seems to affect mostly women and children and spares the men. And it causes them to become very unstable. It causes them to stop being able to talk. And uh, it causes them to laugh sort of pathologically. Uh, things that are, are not funny. And, and eventually they die usually within the year. And the disease just became extraordinarily common over a few decades. It behaved essentially like an infectious disease. And uh, it killed so many women and children uh, or so many women that uh, the men didn't have enough uh, wives to marry. Whereas it used to be, you know, it would be the opposite for most tribes that men would go off to warfare and die. And so there was a surplus of women in this tribe. It was the opposite balance. And uh, it was just horrible for them. And no one knew what was causing it. And eventually uh, they, through a series of experiments um, and also through uh, some work by anthropologists uh, an anthropologist named Shirley Lindenbaum, and uh, they end up figuring it out, and they realize that the disease is caused by uh, proteins that are infectious. Uh, and so, these proteins—we all carry these proteins walking around, but in some people, uh, the proteins can adopt a different shape, and that shape is toxic. And in the four tribe, the reason why they, in particular, were getting ravaged by the disease is because they practiced what's called endocannibalism. So they would eat their own. And after they would pass away, they had this funerary ritual where uh, the, typically the brain would be cut up and would be given to women and they would take leftovers home to their children. And the disease itself was being transmitted in the brains that people were eating. It would have the toxic protein in it. People would eat it and then they would get the disease. Then they would develop toxic proteins in their brains. They would die. Someone would eat their brain. And that's how it went from generation to generation. And it was affecting kids because the women were bringing it home and giving it to their children. Right. Um, and so eventually they outlawed cannibalism and then the disease, it doesn't really exist anymore. No, which is, is good. 
I know you're a busy, busy doctor. So again, I'm talking to Dr. Sarah Manning Peskin about her book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. And I just, because I think this last part is super important because we don't think about, most people might think about nutrition on, oh, how do I lose weight? And how do I, you know, I don't know, get more muscle or, you know, whatever. And they're not thinking about what I eat is going to influence my brain and, and what I drink is going to influence my brain. And I was intrigued with the section on invaders, which is what any, any, whether it's medication or a drug of uh, other kind or alcohol, which is a drug. Um, you highlight something in there with respect to alcohol. I won't give the whole, uh, way, but (laughs) I remember, so my background, my bachelor's degree was in psychobiology, which at that time was really neurobiology. And I'll never forget sitting in the room and seeing on the slide the hippocampus of a person who was an alcoholic. And it shrunk. It was just teeny tiny. And I remember thinking, why would anybody do that? But alcohol also saps vitamins and other things from your body. And uh, there's one vitamin in particular that you talk about. Um, What is it and how important is it to how our brain functions? Yeah. So this is a story that I tell um, that I tell in the book. It's about a woman who she started uh, getting weak. She was a woman in her her 60s or so when this happened. Um, And she'd had this sort of unusual story uh, where she had uh, grown up working on cars and then she'd actually become a nurse and uh, had never imagined that she would get married and ends up marrying this guy with multiple kids. And she sort of takes the takes care of the kids and and raises them and she's the one who's sort of the she's the one who has everything together she organizes the family she's sort of the person who does it all she has this you know incredible executive function skill can can keep everyone on target and then suddenly she starts having issues and she starts uh, falling and she gets weaker and weaker and they think this is an autoimmune disease but they treat her for it and she doesn't seem to get better and she starts having memory problems and she does this thing that's uh, this unusual thing called confabulation where she sort of you can sort of think of it as filling in gaps, although it's not, it doesn't exactly work that way, but essentially she would get like morsel of information and then she would create these elaborate memories and she's totally unaware that they're false. And so people call it honest lying. Uh, you know, you could say to her, um, Oh, did you like the concert we went to last night? And she might go off on you know a story of being at the concert, even though, you know, you, you never actually went to a concert last night. Um, but it's not that she's purposely making things up. It's that her memory is actually creating these false memories. Um, and uh, for her, eventually, uh, her husband actually mentioned to the doctors that she'd been drinking heavily. And the doctor then, you know, very quickly put it together and said, oh my gosh, we have to check for a vitamin deficiency. And lo and behold, she was deficient in a vitamin called thymine, which is we often see in people who have heavy alcohol use or if they have very poor diets, and you can see deficiencies in, in thymine. Right. And, um, and then the nice thing about it is if you catch it in time, uh, it, it's treatable. Um, so you give people high doses of thymine and, um, and they can get better. If you don't catch it in time, catch it in time, at some point you reach a threshold where it's no longer treatable, even if you give someone thymine. Right. And that's, it's also known as B1 vitamin, right? Yeah. Vitamin B1. Exactly. Is that because it was the first vitamin discovered? So yes, that was the first one that was isolated from, uh, from food. 
Okay. I had a recent experience, I'm still, I guess, being recovering from it, vitamin D deficiency, which shocked me because I'm outside all the time. I'm in the sun and I don't use sunscreen. And, um, and it was, I think it's like supposed to be 70 and I'm like, I was eight. Oh my gosh. That's really deficient. I know. And, and I, I didn't realize why I was so tired and, you know, and it's a hormone and it's involved in muscles and nerves and all of those things. And so we treated for six months and it didn't go up at more than like 10 points. And so I decided there was probably a medication because medications can also cause us to have vitamin deficiencies or interrupt yeah. processing or the absorption, pro, you know, all uh -huh. kinds of things. So I decided there was a medication I was taking. So I stopped taking that medication and now we'll see, I'll get checked again, but. And see if you're right. And see if <laughs> yeah, I'm so right. Where we see it the most is because we, when people come in with cognitive issues, we often check a B12 because if you have a low B12 yep. and it can cause memory issues or executive function issues and a big offender for that is metformin. Yeah. Um, so when people are on metformin for diabetes, it can cause their B12 to go down. Yeah. I had a B12 years ago because I became vegetarian. Now I know I need to supplement. Right. But my neurologist, he gave me a B12 shot. He was take a supplement every day or I'm <laughs> and I remember my hands going numb, you know, a lot with, with the B12. Um, one condition that you don't talk about in your book, but has been in the news a little bit. And, and I promise this is the last question. Um, <laughs> cause it's just so much fun talking to you, um, is aphasia. And I remember learning about aphasias, uh, and thought they were like interesting, also slightly terrifying. You know, can, can you talk a little bit, just a little bit, what is aphasia and, and are there any sort of neurodegenerative types of aphasia? Um, yeah, so that's actually clinically, that's actually my one of my areas of expertise is these um, neurodegenerative types of aphasia. And there's sort of, for the most part, there are three different types. And these are these are conditions that cause progressive problems with language. And they're very difficult to diagnose. And most people will go walk around with them for years knowing something is wrong and without a diagnosis. But there's really three types. And there's one type called logopenic primary progressive aphasia. They're all called primary progressive aphasia because it's a primary language problem. They're progressive over time. And aphasia is just a language problem. Um, the logopenic kind is typically actually caused by the same proteins or it's associated with the same proteins as Alzheimer's disease. And with that, it tends to cause people to have a lot of difficulty finding words in conversation. But if you jump in and give them the word, they'll say, oh, oh yeah, that's the right word. They just can't pull it up. But it's, it's more than the typical word finding you see with, um, with normal aging. And they also have a lot of difficulty with repetition. So if you, um, say, you know, I'm going to give you this phrase and I want you to repeat it, they struggle a lot with it, but they know what the words mean. They just can't come up with them. Um, and then there are two other types of primary progressive aphasia that are associated with something else called frontotemporal dementia. One of them yeah, is called a non-fluent achromatic primary progressive aphasia. In that one, people tend to make grammatical errors. Um, they tend to say, they'll say yes when they mean no. Um, and they become non-fluent. Their, their, their ability to produce words um, is, is severely limited. So it's not just that they have trouble finding words in sentences. It's that the actual number of words that they speak per minute is extraordinarily low. Um, and um, and that tends to, when you look at their MRI, um, you tend to see shrinking more towards the front of the brain, typically on the left. And the last one, which is sort of the, the most sort of um, striking always to me, 
is called semantic primary progressive aphasia. And this is a disease where people lose the connection between words and the objects that they or the things that they signify. So you can imagine, you know, when you were a kid, you learned that an apple is a, you know, red or green fruit that is has a skin on the outside and it's crunchy, um, but there's nothing inherent about an apple that's connected to that sound of a PPLE apple. There's nothing inherent about it. You just made that connection. And as part of this disease, that connection is lost. So people will say, um, you know, oh, what is, what does milk mean? Or, um, you know, I'll have people say, uh, oh, you know, I asked them to go get the, um, you know, get the water off of the island uh, in the kitchen. And they said, what's an island? Um, but they're totally fluent. So you talk to these people and you often cannot pick up that there's anything wrong. It's really subtle. It's only in these wild uh, sort of unusual cases where they just, they don't know what words mean. And then slowly over time, they start to lose the idea of what objects are and what objects do. So you, um, you may have someone who, and we do this in our clinic, you know, you give them a can opener and they sort of look at it and they play around with it, but they don't know what it's for. So they lose the understanding of the purpose of objects. Um, so those are really the main three types of, of, of these neurodegenerative types of aphasia. Um, and they're, they're just, um, they're really unusual diseases and they can be very isolating because uh, they affect people's ability to function socially. Yeah. And um, they're, uh, but they're tough diseases. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, I know there is so much that we still don't understand about the brain and I'm so glad that I got the chance to talk to you. I want everybody to go get a copy of A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain. Thank you, Sarah. Thank so you fun. so much. This was so fun. Yes. You're such a wonderful interviewer. This was great. Thank that was a great interview. And she's a brilliant doctor and outstanding writer. So please get a copy of her book. I'm a huge fan of comedy. And some of you may remember me from my days on the D.L. Hughley show. Another comedian I love but didn't get to work with was Robin Williams. I grew up on Mork and Mindy. He was brilliant, dynamic, and a lover of animals. He committed suicide in August 2014. An autopsy later revealed that he had something called Louis body disease. They'd been trying to figure out what was wrong with him, and his symptoms were much of what we heard Dr. Sara talk about today. Severe memory loss, movement changes, personality changes, sleep changes, changes to his mood, and hallucinations. Lewy body disease is caused by one of those rebellious proteins that begins accumulating in the brain. We all have the protein, but in Lewy body disease, it goes off script. The deposits of alpha-synuclein are called Lewy bodies, and it's devastating. It also affects over a million people in the United States alone. Check out the show notes for links to Dr. Sara Manning-Peskin and her spectacular and heart-wrenching book, A Molecule Away from Madness, Tales of the Hijacked Brain, and links to an article written by Snyder Williams, Robin's Wife and the Lewy Body Disease Organization. You can find these links in the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, I can't say how much it would mean to give it a review on iTunes and follow us. I 
have had the chance to talk to so many exceptional scientists, doctors, conservationists, and authors. And I want to keep bringing incredible people on the show to talk about our connection with each other and the natural world. So your support makes a difference. Next time, I'll be coming to you from the Animal Behavior Society Conference in Costa Rica. Thanks for listening.